the Fianna, I think, really expressed this beautifully, this this balance in life. One of their initiations was that you had to be able to recite poetry while dancing on the tips of spears. You know, it's this beautiful balance <laughs> they have. So they would hunt and they would fight and they would, you know, and they would give their all to the hunting. They would give their all to the fighting. Every time a weird old man came out of the woods and said, do you want to come to my house and you maybe get involved in some very bizarre hijinks? They would say yes, straight away, definitely. That was their attitude to life. But when it came to the feasting hall, they gave their all to feasting. They gave their all to poetry and to celebration and to loving. There wasn't any kind of monkish refusal of that joy and that coming together, you know, as, mu as much as there are warriors. So this is an image which I've been reflecting on that, you know, we, we can really celebrate rest and relaxation and pleasure and joy and community as much as we can celebrate and give ourselves to our passions and to our work and to our creations. And uh, it's, it's the winter feast that symbolizes that. Welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. Happy Halloween. Happy beginning of winter. This episode, I interview Daniel Allison. And Daniel Allison is an international Scottish storyteller, author, and podcaster. He's the host of House of Legends podcast. Daniel has a lyrical and evocative style that breathes new life into ancient tales. In this episode, we talk about the season of winter and the ways that we can harness this time of year of darkness and, and rest and introversion to make our lives more like our dreams. And he shares a story with me, which is full of enchantment and beautiful imagery that I know will just light you up as it does me. I've been reading Daniel's book of Scottish folk and mythical tales called Scottish Myths and Legends, which you've probably heard about if you've been following me on social media, and I'm enjoying it so much. I was interviewed by Daniel last year on his podcast, House of Legends, and it was such an incredible conversation that I thought I should come back for more and share his incredible skill and personality and optimism with you as well. So without further ado, this is my conversation with Scottish storyteller Daniel Allison. Hello, Daniel. Welcome to Fair Folk. It's so nice to have you. I've been um, watching your work for about a year now. Since you had me on your podcast, I've started to to be aware of the amazing work that you're up to at all times. You're incredibly prolific as a writer and a storyteller. And I wanted to bring you here to share your gifts and your special approach to, to folk tales and to narrative in general. And I want to start by asking you how you got into this whole world of storytelling in the first place. What captured your heart? Cheryl, thanks very much for having me, Danica. Uh, likewise, it's an honor. I'm a big fan of your work. 
and it's absolutely lovely to be here and to speak to you again. Uh, well, I'd always loved myths and legends. I'd loved stories since I was a little kid. I grew up in the countryside, quite isolated, and books, stories were my entire world. And um, myths and legends, uh, myths and legends books, you know, Greek myths that I would just read over and over and over. Um, and I kind of forgot about them as I got older. And then in my 20s, uh, I was learning didgeridoo from a Welshman in Edinburgh, uh, weirdly enough. And um, we were sat there and he picked up a photograph of this old man with long white hair and this beautiful smile wearing a kilt. And he said, this is David Campbell. You should meet him. And I said, you know, it was kind of random. I said, OK, uh, why? Who's he? And he said, oh, he's a storyteller, amazing man. And I, I said, storyteller? What, what's that? You know, vaguely familiar with this idea from, you know, characters in fantasy novels but not uh, real life and he explained to me how David was a storyteller and he was a storyteller and there was this whole little subculture of people who went around learning and performing myths and legends and I was just like wow that's like hearing oh by the way you know you can be a dragon rider if you want it's a job and I was like yeah. okay okay I, I'm doing that that's my job I'd always been of a quite a dramatic bent I'd done done drama at school and a bit at university but fallen out of it because it just didn't really feel like my world and um, and I was a, a fiction writer also. And when I discovered, you know, you, you could tell myths and legends and perform those, that was that that was my world. I just knew it was the right thing for me. And I started doing it. And for the first time in my life, it felt like something like I was on the right path. Everything just started falling into place. I started meeting the right people. People started offering me storytelling gigs without even knowing I was a storyteller. It was all quite mm. magical. That is the nature of magic, isn't it? <laughs> put forth a small amount of effort in the direction that resonates and the world just seems to stand up and take note. It's amazing. Yeah, the, the saying I like is you take one step towards fate and fate takes one step towards you. It's nice and neat. It is nice and neat. I've been reading your book, Scottish Myths and Legends, in the bath every night <laughs> lately. And um, I'm I'm quite addicted to it, actually. And I find... And I think this is your unique approach to it, that when I'm reading it, it feels like I'm reading these this genre for the first time. And not because you're making some monstrous, you know, new thing out of it, but because you seem to have this really fresh way of expressing things really clear and simple without being simplistic, that to me appears unique. And I'm curious about how you how you think about like what's the word, like making things new compared to traditional knowledge as like a fixed entity? Mm, that's a really good question. It's one I'm scared I'm not going to be able to articulate an answer to. <laughs> um, well, in terms of the writing and making them, I'm not, not sure about making them new, but I know that the way I try to write them is, well, for example, a lot of times you'll hear, you'll you'll read or you'll hear someone say, so she, the giant took him to his castle and he lived there. And then on the story goes, so as because I've got a background, of course, writing fantasy and writing fiction where you need a bit more detail than that, I'll say, OK, well, what did the giant's castle look like? What was the landscape like? What was the atmosphere? Give us let's have some interesting details here. Um, so I'll try and fill it in, you know, fill in the image so that you can really see it and also make it a bit different. Like so I, I want to throw in something that surprises you in each in each in each in each scene, in each element of the story, while at the same time keeping it feeling feeling authentic feeling like it you know it's it's in line with that the tone of the story and of the the landscape that the story is uh, arises out of 
And then another thing which I think is important is that because I am an oral storyteller, uh, and this this comes out in my fiction writing as well, I found very interestingly, it's there's this forward moving pace uh, which people who write literary versions of folk tales quite often maybe don't have so much because as as an oral storyteller, you know, you you cannot get lost in in detail. You cannot get less lost in anything, you know, because your audience, particularly, you know, if you're telling to children, they're gonna be like bored now. Um, so you have this brisk pace and you have this immediacy. So I think I try and combine the two of them, um, which perhaps gives a, a, a certain freshness. That must be it, because, I mean, the, the idea of the, the oral tradition and the storyteller originates in this, in this moment of live storytelling and of responsiveness to the audience. And that's something we really lose in written versions of, of traditional stories, I think. Mm. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I picture you um, next to a fire <laughs> with people around. Yeah, not often enough. Does that enough. happen very often? <laughs> not often enough. I mean, it it does happen. I can think of some really, really wonderful tellings where I've been uh, in the woodland with my friends gathered around a fire or in a giant big fire pit at a festival. And uh, the storytelling happens then, but they're, they're kind of few and far between. And, you know, more often when you're doing it for a job, you're in a library, you're in a school classroom. You, know, you could be in a, you know, in a prison, you could be in all kinds of places, um, but it definitely is wonderful around the fire. Like um, an image is, a memory is just coming to mind of being with my friend uh, Kate from Kate and the Kettle, a really amazing Scottish traditional musician. And we were at this gathering in a fire in the woods in Roslyn Glen, and she just happened to have her harp with her. So she just started playing harp and sort of improvising while I told the story of Rhiannon um, from Welsh mythology. And, you know, th- those moments are what you live for as a storyteller. Yes, that's amazing. I wonder also if um, this sort of modern um, entertainment culture actually can, because of its like shortening of the average attention span and, and the fact that there's so many other options available for entertainment, I wonder if it actually causes live oral storytellers to become more skilled as a result than they might have otherwise had to be, in a different way at least. I mean... Not like you probably don't know like the epic legends in the same way that your traditional storyteller might, but there's another area. Yeah, and that's that's something I do find myself pining for. Like imagine if I lived in a time, you know, when you would be learning, you know, of something that took five days to tell from your storytelling teacher. And that's is actually, you know, what I wanna move towards a bit more. But you know, this thing of um, short attention span, you know, that's that's definitely very real. I mean, I, I feel it and I see it around me. But when I do uh, when I do a gig and it's a good one, like I'm thinking of schools in particular, and with a group of ten year olds, say, who are like my favorite audience really to tell to, and we'll we'll go for an hour and they are wrapped the entire time. Their eyes just do not leave me. Their imaginations you can almost see the the little bubbles <laughs> around their head over their head, you know. And their short attention span is not a problem. So in a way, yeah, our our attention spans have become very fractured. But there's something in us that does not want that, you know, that really doesn't want that, that wants so much to get lost uh, in a great epic story. You know, at the same time, like while we, while our attention span keeps getting fractured, people now prefer to watch uh, a series which lasts, you know, hours and hours and hours rather than to watch a movie that lasts an hour and a half. And, you know, we love that now. So, yeah, it, it's it doesn't really seem to be a problem. That's amazing. Well, I think that's the the can do attitude that allows you to be successful in a in a career that is considered unconventional and perhaps impossible. 
So mm. kudos to you for that. <laughs> Thanks very much. So I've been thinking a lot about the concept of rest and leisure and ideas of work, especially as we're coming up to the winter season, which in Northern European latitudes is typically sort of like a long holiday season in a way, or it's a very different way of being than the very externally focused summer work season, um, especially late summer. And I'm curious as someone who has familiarity with with some Scottish folk tradition and who also has a really creative and like um, heartfelt take on things in general, what what comes to mind when you think about wintertime and rest and work? Actually, it's it's really interesting to talk about this because I've been listening to your recent episodes and I've been thinking a lot about what you've been talking about and this idea of the, the folklore of um, rest and peace and relaxation. And it's particularly interesting and challenging for me because I am a bit of a workaholic. Like I've got a lot of energy, a lot of creative interests that I'm pouring myself into every day and I do have to force myself uh, to take time off. And um, sometimes it's been it just been a really direct thing. Like I've been listening to your podcast while making my dinner and thinking about, right, am I going to do some work after dinner? And then I'm like, no, I'm not going to do some work. I'm going to take some time off. So that's been... <laughs> That's been quite nice. Um, but the image that keeps coming back to me is the from a story, Black, ba- Black Brown and Grey, uh, in which the Fianna, uh, the band of warriors that used to protect the shores of Scotland and Ireland from invaders, uh, they are gathering at Samhain at this time of year, um, Halloween, the beginning of the, the Celtic New Year. And they're gathering, they're coming from this part of the country and that part and the other. And they've come to Finn McCool, their leader's hall, and they're saying hello and greeting one another and getting in, you know, that feeling of like, you know, it's the party's starting, you're meeting up with your old friends. And it's gonna it's gonna go all winter. It's gonna go all winter. They are gonna celebrate and they are gonna feast. And that seemed to me like the kind of quintessential image uh, of what winter is in the Celtic tradition. Uh, the Fianna, I think, really expressed this beautifully, this this balance in life, like, you know, balance is something we hear talked about a lot, and it's maybe become a bit of a sort of dull, leaden term. But in the Fianna, like in their initiations, one of their initiations was that you had to be able to recite poetry while dancing on the tips of spears. You know, it's this beautiful balance <laughs> they have. Um, so they would, they would hunt and they would fight and they would, you know, and they would give their all to the hunting. They would give their all to the fighting. Every time a weird old man came out of the woods and said, do you want to come to my house and maybe get involved in some very bizarre hijinks? They would say yes, straight away, definitely. That was their attitude to life. But when it came to the feasting hall, they gave their all to feasting. They gave their all to poetry and to celebration and to loving. There wasn't any kind of monkish refusal of... Uh, of that joy and that coming together, you know, as, mu- as much as there are warriors. So this is an image which I've been reflecting on that, you know, we we can really celebrate rest and, and relaxation and pleasure and joy and community as much as we can celebrate and give ourselves to our passions and to our work and to our creations. And uh, it's, it's the winter feast that symbolizes that. Thank you. I was also reading your story of the is it the tale of the hoodie? Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of these a lot of moments in the stories that you choose and maybe because a lot of them are set in northern Scotland, but there's a lot of moments where people go inward for a season and and do something very 
unremarkable looking to emerge um, changed in some way. Would you would you like to speak about that a little more? Is there anything that resonates with you about that? Yeah, yeah. The t- Tale of the Hoodie is a, is a real favorite of mine. So in this story, it's one of these stories, um, probably some of your listeners will be familiar with the story East of the Sun, West of the Moon, um, these stories in which uh, some kind of animal comes to a family and wants to marry one of the three daughters and two will refuse him and the youngest one will say yes. And she goes off with him and he turns out to live in a rather splendid castle and he's only an animal half of the time. He'll be a, an animal at night and go off and do his animal things and uh, be, a, be a man with her during the day or sometimes vice versa. And it's all rather nice and wonderful. And she has babies with him. And all of every time she has a baby and he goes off into the night, some strange music starts playing. She falls asleep and wakes up to find her baby's gone. And it happens again with a second child. It happens again with a third child. And after the third child is taken, her husband just disappears, runs off into the woods or flies off uh, into the mountains. And then she pursues him. She pursues him day and night, far, far beyond any known place uh, until she catches up with him. And the tale of the hoodie is the uh, the, the best known Scottish uh, guise of that story, uh, one I really love. So in this, she follows her husband and he's flying over the, over the mountains, uh, through the glens of the highlands by the locks, and she's following him. And she's just given birth, literally the day before. Yeah, so she's not on a state for her multi-day hiking, but she's doing it anyway. And this, in her, this you see the spirit start to arise that you haven't seen before. Like when she said yes to him, when she said yes to marrying a hoodie, a crow, you know, you saw that she was someone who's not going to live the normal path. You know, she's going to go a different way. You saw something of her spirit. But now that spirit is being forced to reveal itself and it's being tested you know are you going to follow him are you going to follow your passion your heart's desire and she does day and night and you know she gets little clues along the way but she also is kind of teased by him he's always appearing in the distance and then flying away as she gets close and finally she stays in this house where the woman in the house older woman says you know you will find your husband but not tomorrow nor the next day he has crossed the hill of poison And if you want to get over there, you're going to have to forge horseshoes, four of them for your hands and feet, and you have to forge them yourself. And this is autumn when this happens. So the girl goes to a village, she goes to the blacksmith, and she apprentices to the blacksmith. And so that winter, surrounded by the the, the dark of winter in that northern latitude, she sits in the blacksmith, in the forge, and she learns that our blacksmithing, you know, she pumps the bellows, she learns all the different things you do, and eventually she has forged for perfect horseshoes, and now she is ready to cross the hill of poison. And this is an image that really speaks to me when we're talking about autumn into winter, that transition. Autumn, it's she's she's following and following her her heart's desire, her love. And I kind of feel like I at least am in that position of now of what am I going to give myself to this winter? What am I going to pay attention to? What am I going to apprentice myself to? And then when winter comes, I feel like she is very much supported by the darkness. That stillness allows her to be with this object of great concentration and warmth and heat. And certainly it's challenging. You know, she's really going to you know, she has to become very physically strong. She has to pay real attention or, you know, it's a pretty dangerous place, a blacksmith's forge. 
but she is renewed. And when she emerges in the spring, it's like she has been forged. You know, she has been made and she, you know, she climbs the hill of poison and she goes and she she rescues her husband. And that is the making of her. So what I what I kind of take from that or what resonates with me is that winter is a really supportive time to to rest but not to rest completely and not to kind of just drift in our attention. It supports us to give our attention to something. It might be learning to make something, might be writing a book, it might be any kind of creative thing, or it might just be really paying attention to something. It might be a meditation practice. It might be studying a piece of art, but there's a real, there's a real holding there. That's, that's what that story says to me. That's wonderful. Um, to think of the darkness as a, a sacred container for attention, as opposed to sort of diffusion or like being deflated. <laughs> that I have this this belief and this observation working with children a lot. I used to be a teacher. That we're never not learning. We're always we're always attending to something. We're always growing or transforming in some way, even if it's passive. So we might as well spend our devotion somewhere if it's going to be you know coming out of us at all times <laughs> yeah um, yeah 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 and we're we're all, we're all going into the cauldron every winter you know we're going into some those of us who live in darkness for winter we're going into some kind of initiation so you know we might as well go willingly rather than getting pushed off the nest as a little bird we might as well leap you know and fly and uh yeah it's, it's i think we're, we're always going to be learning, as you say. So choose to learn rather than getting forced because it's going gonna, it's gonna to go a lot more smoothly. And then you get to choose the direction of your learning, just like, just like the, you know, the dream of, I mean, you and I both are doing things as a career that, that we love, that are a devotion. And that's a huge gift. And um, it doesn't have to be your career, but just to me, it seems really important to always emphasize that when you move toward the things you love, the world begins to open a bit more every moment. Yeah, yeah, and it's especially at this time, because of course, uh, not to downplay how awful a lot of people's situations have been and perhaps will be this year in terms of isolation or being stuck in uh, places where they don't want to be or with people they don't want to be. But if we are going to be going through initiation in winter with with some kind of form of lockdown, it's it's like it's time to get our game face on. It's time to say, okay, I'm I'm going to do something. I'm going to learn something. I'm going to make something of this, because then you can, you know, then you can ride the waves rather than drowning in them. And then you come out the other side having more evidence that you can do hard things, <laughs> and that you are more powerful than you probably think. Yeah, yeah, and and we, and we all crave that. You know, we all crave initiation. There's part of us that, you know, like the part of us that gets so wrapped up in the story that wants to go out into the wild places and see what's there. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's there. We just kind of need to remember it and uh, apply it to our to our life and remember that our lives can be that adventure that I think we might sometimes think just exists in a book. Well, speaking of which, I know that you have a story for us today about the moment of transition from from summer to winter season and that it has to do with with a sort of ordinary activity that turns into something supernatural and and quite incredible and amazing do you feel do you feel ready to share that with us now yeah yeah certainly 
Uh, so the story I would like to share with you today, it's uh, another story in the book in Scottish Myths and Legends. It's called The Makers of Dreams. And I encountered it quite early on, I think, when I got into storytelling. My teacher, David Campbell, the one I was shown the picture of, who I started to train with, um, he's very keen on it and tells it a lot. And then it kind of gets passed around a lot between the Scottish storytellers. And when I came across it, I was just like, why isn't this one of those ones that everyone knows? You know, why isn't this like Cinderella or Little Red Riding Hood? It should be universal. But instead, it's this obscure little story that you just really hear in Scotland. Um, so it was collected by Otto Swire, uh, who collected stories in Skye in the 1950s. Uh, Skye being, you know, probably most people have heard of it, this very famous, magical, beautiful island in the west coast of Scotland, named after Skathach or Skia, uh, the Shadow Queen, who's this very, very mysterious and dark and wonderful, perhaps fairy woman, um, who runs this fort place, the Fortress of Shadows, which is a kind of training ground for warriors and witches and so on on the Island of Sky. But I'm getting diverted there, I'm not talking about Skathic here. Um, but <laughs> you want to get an idea of what kind of place Sky, the, the Isle of Mists, is uh, before you hear this story. So this is the story, and it's called The Makers of Dreams. Long ago, one crisp, bright autumn morning on the island of Skye, a group of girls set out to go blaberry picking. They left their village, baskets in hands, and joking and laughing and playing with one another, they set off towards the foothills of the Black Cullen Mountains. So they walked along and they talked and they laughed, and when they got to the foothills, they bent down and they began blaberry picking. And there was one girl among them who, when she began picking berries, she didn't join in the joking anymore. She began completely intent upon picking the berries. She was intent on picking the sharpest, the juiciest, the freshest berries. So she forgot the sounds of her friends' voices. She didn't look up at all. She was like a hunting wolf bent down over the grass that grew thinner and thinner and thinner until she finally stopped and she looked up and looked around her and she got a shock for she was no longer in the foothills of the Cullens she was among the mountains themselves now the Cullens, the Black Cullens are treacherous mountains even today, even today compasses don't work up there they just go round and round and round back then Nobody, nobody went up into the high columns at all, for it was known there was giants and all kinds of fearsome creatures up there. Certainly never a girl her age would be up there. So she was up there alone and she looked around and thought, oh, what am I doing? I need to get out of here. And right in that instant, right in that instant, the har, the sea mist blew in around her, thick, fast, and it was all around her. So she couldn't see an inch this way or that way or that way or that. So... She just stood there. You know, she was to start walking and walk in the wrong direction. She could fall to her death. So she stood there, not knowing what to do, growing colder, seeing that it was darkening. And then 
she heard noises. Noises. And she thought of all the stories she'd heard of the Cullens, all the dark tales that had kept her up around the fire at night. And then, faces. Faces began to appear out of the mist around her, and she laughed. For they weren't giants, it wasn't monsters. These were deer. It was a herd of hinds. And the hinds, they gathered around her and they pressed in closer and they looked at her, giving her these quizzical looks that seemed to say, what are you doing here? And she was thinking, well, shall I tell them what I'm doing here? When all of a sudden they all stopped, they froze, their ears pricked up and they turned. They were listening to something, something she couldn't hear. It was as if she was, they were listening to a voice from the mountains themselves. And then at once, they started to move. A path formed through the mist and down at the went and they were looking round at her like, are you coming? Are you coming? And well, she didn't know what else to do. So she came, she went, she followed them. And they led her up, 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 up through the winding stony glens of the Cullens until finally the mist broke and in the last light of day the deer led her into a little glen high up among the mountains and it was the most beautiful glen she had ever seen. Myriad waterfalls tumbled down between the jagged little peaks and little streams crisscrossed the grass that was covered in flowers and herbs of all kinds. And the deer led her. She crossed this little glen until they came to the end of the glen. And there was a cave. The deer waited. She waited as the lead hind walked into the cave. And the girl looked into the cave. And this is what she saw. In the cave was a fire. By the fire was a pool. By the pool were two seats of stone and sat on those seats of stone were an old man and an old woman. And I don't mean old like regular old people. I mean ancient, ancient. They were old when the mountains were young. You just knew it looking at them. And they sat completely still, stiller than the stones. And the lead hind went up to the woman, spoke to her in some strange barking tongue. And then the old woman nodded, nodded, looked up, looked at the girl. And then up she got and she harpled over. She came to the girl and said, what are you doing here? So the girl explained to him, she told the whole story of how she'd been at blaberry picking and then the mist and the deer, they'd led her up here. And she, she reached into her basket of berries and held out a handful of berries to the old woman and said, C- can I stay here a night? The old woman hmm, turned around, went over to the old man and whispered in his ear. The old man barely nodded. And then the old woman came back and she smiled at the girl and she said, no. No, you may not stay here a night. A year and a night, you may stay. I am old. My work wearies me. Help me with it. Earn your keep. And to that, the girl 
agreed. So that winter, and then the next spring and into the summer, she stayed in that glen. She never left it. And she helped the old woman with her work. She followed her around at first, just seeing what she did. And each day, the old woman would walk out across the glen, taking a bucket and a little stool with her. And in some place, she would sit down on her stool, put her bucket out in front of her. The deer would come from wherever they were, and they would line up. And one by one, they would stand in front of the old woman over the bucket, and she would ksh, 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 milk the deer. When that was done, she would go around picking herbs, meadowsweets and thyme, and then she would head back into the, into the cave, and she would heat the bucket of milk over the fire to make crowdy, kind of sharp cheese. And this, this was the old woman's life. The girl watched, and then one day she took over the old woman's work. And one day she said to the old woman, what is that pool? What is that pool that the old man looks into? For while all this happened, day and night, the old man just sat there, staring into the pool and its shifting strange waters in which she saw all kinds of images. And the old woman said, that pool is the pool of life. Now that crowdy, that bucket of crowdy cheese, the old woman would put it down next to the old man where he sat. And he would stare into the pool, stare into the pool of life. And he would pick out handfuls of crowdy. And as he stared into it, he would fashion them into shapes till they had a bucket full of these creations. And come evening, he would head out, out to this rocky buttress overlooking the Western Sea. And one day, the girl, she said to the old woman, what are, what are those things the old man makes? And the old woman said, they are dreams. We are the makers of dreams. The old man would stand upon the rocky buttress, looking over the western ocean, and as the sun scattered gold over the mountains, he would hold up the dreams in his hands. In his right hand, he would hold up dreams of hope, dreams of friendship, love, bravery, kindness, and birds would come swooping down, eagles, wrens, falcons, hawks, and they would snatch up the dreams and carry them off, carry them out across the world to plant them in the minds of sleepers the world over. And in his left hand, in his left hand, the old man would hold up dark dreams. Dreams of jealousy, dreams of hatred, deceits, broken promises. And birds of the battlefield, kites and hoody crows, ravens, would come swooping down, snatch those dreams up and take them away plant them in sleeping minds the world over, a dark harvest they would wait to reap. When a year and a night were over, the old woman said to the girl, You have done well. You may go now. Your reward awaits you. She called over the lead hinds, spoke to her, and then the hinds 
gathered around the girl and led her away again. They led her down this path she'd never noticed before, and they went down, 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 out of the glen, down, 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 and in no time at all, they're on a little beach, sun setting, the beach facing out west. And the girl, she thanked the hinds, and she was crying a little because she was sad to be going, you know. She she was looking forward to seeing her friends and seeing seeing her family, but she'd loved her time there. She loved sleeping and waking up, hearing the crackling of the fire, seeing the old man sat there, gazing into the pool. She loved the times when she would gather her sleeping skins and she'd go over and sit there with him, stare into the pool herself for hours, watching the shapes he made from what he saw. But, you know, she understood. She understood that destiny was carrying her onwards. So she hugged the deer and she made to go, but they gathered around her, and they seemed to be saying, no, you're not going yet. And they were looking out west. So she looked out west. And there, on the ocean, she saw, coming towards her, a boat. A little coracle, a little skin boat. As it came closer, she saw that it was a man who was rowing it. And she saw that he had a golden torque around his neck. He was a prince. He beached his craft, he walked up the sand, and the deers parted and bowed before him. He stood before her and said, My lady, I have dreamed of you every night for a year and a night. I have come for you, I have come searching for you, I have travelled east and further east and east to ask if you will return with me to my home in Tirnanog, land of the ever-young. Be my, be my bride, be our princess, be our queen, and teach us the meaning of dreams. She wasn't fool enough to say no. She said yes. She took his hand. They got into the boat and they rowed away. And they sailed over the ocean. They sailed west. They sailed further west and west until they came to the white, white shores of Tirnanog. And there she became his bride. There she became queen. And she taught the people there the meaning of dreams. She lives there now, and she will live there until the end of days. And that's the story of the makers of dreams. Thank you so much. I'm especially taken by two different images in the story. Number one, um, there's nothing more magical than finding yourself among a herd of deer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I love the image of them turning their heads to communicate. And is that is that part of the story, um, one that you learned or one that you included yourself? Um, I think it was there originally. But, you know, I think you, you think you're you're telling the story the way you heard it. But then over the years, you know, it's like Chinese whispers. You eventually go back perhaps to a written version you learn or hear this storyteller you first heard it from. And thought, oh, no, no, I've changed that. So I'm not sure. But I, I think it was there originally. Mm -hmm. I also really love that dreams are made of cheese. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> little cheese shapes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You'd never really think that, would you? They're, they're little cheese shapes, but they are. You know, mm -hmm. it's in Scottish mythology, so it must be true. It must be. Yeah. So what do you make of that story? It's um, it's this kind of initiation, isn't it? Like you get some kind of initiation stories 
they're all about they start off with an outward journey and there's lots of energy and you head off into the world and you might hang out with giants and bash people over the head with clubs before you fall down a hole into the underworld and all your bones break and that's when you start to confront the darkness and you maybe have to fight Baba Yaga but then this is this kind of very gentle very soft initiation story where she's you know it's again it's the the girl that's that bit different it's got a bit more spirit the one who's ready to step into a story and she's led into this place where she's very gently held very very gently you know it's it's all supportive there's no there's no testing here other really than her paying attention and her kindness and her care to towards I suppose towards the deer the old woman to the, the place and it's it seems to me like a real reflection of what we've been talking about here today. It's this thing of being held in this wintry space, you know, it's high up in the Cullens. That's a that's a really treacherous environment. You know, people people die up there today regularly. You know, it's it's not to be not to be messed with. So she's up there in this extreme environment, and she's just paying attention. She's gazing into the pool, and the fire keeps her warm, and she's supported by these ancestral spirits. By these ancestral beings and when she's done she, she emerges and she has something to share she has something to give and she offers it and what's really really wonderful uh, one really wonderful thing here is that she doesn't just offer it uh, in her regular community but she's plucked you know she's kind of headhunted and taken away to Tirnanog so to, to give her knowledge there I think it means it's going to spread out you know it's spread out everywhere across the world kind of like the old man's dreams uh, yeah so that that's how I see it how about you <laughs> I totally agree um, I'm really taken by the how the old man the ancient man stares into this pool of life um, and I think maybe you've mentioned that in a story, in the story Asipadal, there's a character whose whose main job in life and whose like calling and whose greatest contribution is to mostly sit and watch and dream until the moment they're called to act, and their action has huge consequences once they've done that. Mm, yeah, I I really love that image actually. I think I, I think I kind of resonate. I mean, I, I've I haven't slayed a stir worm like Asipadal certainly, but. I was a really inactive person as as a child and even into my like even into my mid twenties, I kind of read and I sort of lay by the fire in various situations and dreamed until at some point I just kind of snapped into action and since then I kinda of haven't really stopped. And so it's a it's an image that I really identify with and it's I find it really beautiful. Yeah, this this picture of the person who just has to, to dream and lie still uh until and really receive dreams I suppose like the more still you can become perhaps the more the more you can receive until the time comes to to leap into action I also really identify with that character um I mean it's hard not to identify with all the characters and stories really like identify with the girl um in terms of being really like so into what I was doing or so into berry picking when other people didn't seem as excited about such a thing you know like making the ordinary really romantic um, but also that, yeah, I didn't really start doing much. I mean, I I went to school for 10 years um, and studied, you know, literature and, and medieval studies and things. 
Um, but I didn't really feel like I had something that I should do until my 30s, you know? And then I was like, oh, this is what all that preparation was for. I knew that I was in this extended period of preparation. And I always wondered, like, when do I get to do the thing? What's the <laughs> thing, you know? And I was feeling a bit impatient about it. But, you know, ultimately, I'm glad I waited <laughs> until I was until I was ready. Yeah, it's good that you knew that. You know, I don't, I don't think I knew. I, th- I, was, I don't know what I thought. Um, but perhaps that's a good thing to take away, like, for the people that are lying by the fire dreaming covered in ash like acipatel like um acipatel means uh cinder biter like you know someone who's just practically eating the cinders the fire it's like this is where cinderella comes from as well that you know you're you're gonna get called on eventually one thing i kind of fantasize about is going and spending a winter in the really far northern hemisphere like uh, i know i've got i know someone who lives up in tromsa in the north of norway where the sun doesn't come up all winter and i really want to go there i really want to do that because it's it's this idea of, you know, how how still can you lie? How deep can you go into the fire, into the darkness? And what kind of dreams are going to emerge from that place? That's the question of the season. That's the question of this whole year, I think. Thank you so much for being so empowering in, in that. That's, it can never be overstated, the power that comes from, from dreaming. <laughs> mm, yeah. So, so another thing I wanted to mention is, this story is that what we're talking about, Tirnanok, is the story of Ashin and Neve. Uh, so it isn't in Scottish myth and legends. I've got a book specifically about Finn and the Finn McCall and the Fiona coming out soon, so it's in that one. Um, but it's, you know, it's one of our classic stories in which uh, uh, Ashin, the poet of the Fiona, the, the warriors, the son of Finn McCall, their leader, um, this fairy woman comes from Tirnanog and says come away with me. I'm in love with you. Your poetry is told even over in Tiernanog and I've come to love you through your poetry. So do you want to come to Tiernanog and live in peace and perfection and plenty and happiness for all time and never grow old? And he says, yeah, yeah, that sounds pretty good. So uh, over the sea he goes and he lives there with her and you know lives in a palace and they dance beneath the stars every night and every hunt is perfect and it's beautiful. And this goes on until he just gets a bit bored. And, you know, he starts to just miss... He misses the grumpiness he miss, of some people. He misses having a good fight. He misses having a good argument. He misses the ups and downs and the the re, you know the real lows and real highs of of regular life of mortal existence. Um, so he decides he wants to go back. He wants to go back to uh, to uh, see his see his brother see the Fiona. And of course he does. And of course you know it's not quite as he imagined it. Um, but that's another thing. But it's. It, I was reflecting on that while we were while we were talking about this idea um, of this um, balance and rest and relaxation of um, the, you know the, the hunt, the forest, and the, and the, to the feasting hall. I think that illustrates it really beautifully. That you can really have too much of one extreme, like a too much of a of a an endless summer would just become boring. Just as you know, we we could probably couldn't manage a winter that ne- that never ended. Balance again. The polarity of the seasons is such a huge gift. Um, and that comes from from Irish legend too, I think, isn't it? That like Lou gave or negotiated the seasons for humankind. They were offered an endless summer and he refused. <laughs> yeah, which you can live in. Like I lived in Thailand for a year. It was an endless summer. And uh, yeah, I, I did miss the seasons. I did miss the seasons. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's just another way of being, isn't it? Well, thank you so much for all of that. And I want to make sure that we spend some time 
um, sharing where people can find you and what you're working on right now, because I know that you have a lot to offer and I know that people are going to want to go there <laughs> now. So would you share what, what you're up to right now? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I'll probably forget something. So I, I, I do quite a lot. Um, but I have my books so um, people can find my books online. Um, Scottish Myths and Legends is available. Uh, Finn and the Fiona will be coming out uh, hopefully in December. The publishers have you know, had lots of COVID related delays. And um, so that's a retelling of the full Finn McCool cycle. And then there's my fiction and uh, The Shattering Sea is the first book in my series set in ancient Scotland based on Scottish mythology. And um, so that's available now. And there's also my podcast, House of Legends. So that features uh, either myself or a guest storyteller uh, telling a story. And so I have great storytellers from all over the world. And then I have folklore specialists for long chats of this type. So I've had Danica and have other such uh, wonderful people. Um, I also offer online storytelling coaching. I've got a couple of groups and might start a third one at some point. And so that people from all over the world gather together and we're working on our storytelling. That's great fun. And then I, uh, my big thing that I'm working on just now is uh, the Roundhouse. So this is an online storytelling school. And um, so that's going to be launching in January. And it's going to be for everyone from beginners to professional storytellers, a way of really supercharging your practice of um, learning new stories, learning new about new traditions, going deeper into your own tradition. And being part of a community, an active community that's there to support each other, to help each other and to keep each other accountable. Um, I'll be bringing in a lot of the mindsets and goal setting and kind of self-discipline strategies that, I, that I've that um, i been gathering over the years as a, as a writer and entrepreneur and student of martial arts and to make sure that people are really make sure people are practicing and, and getting better. So that's that's my main project just now. And if you if you are interested in that, um, you go to my website, houseoflegends.me, go on membership site, sign up for news, and then you get a discount uh, when it comes to launch. Amazing. I will put all of those links, um, all of the relevant links into the show notes. And I want to say that your roundhouse group sounds especially potent. I think that we often get training in things but the coaching element, the being held by somebody who has experience in it and a group, you can't you can't overstate how valuable that is and how much it helps people to grow. Because, you know, now that the Internet exists, information is is everywhere and it's free. But that's not the same as community and real support and over time. So I'm really excited about that in particular. Thank you. Yeah, it's 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 grown out of this year, really, because I started the online coaching and then I've seen people develop so much. Like, it's been amazing. And then realized that, you know, though we don't have this fire together and tell stories around in the evening, which means a lot of us don't develop nearly as quickly as we could. There is this virtual fire, um, which the Internet can be in which a more kind of focused group like this uh, hopefully will be a virtual fire. But there's always people there to gather with and tell with and support each other. So that is a, you know, it's a really good thing that's come, that's come out of this year. I think the way people are finding, even with the most traditional arts, which people think are the antithesis uh, of of the the internet age, something like storytelling, these two things can come together really wonderfully. And I'm I'm really grateful for this technology that allows me to tell stories to people all over the world. It lets me hear podcasts from all over the world. That lets me, you know, enjoy your work and be talking to you right now. 
So I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing and there's no reason why these wonderful ancient traditions and modern technology can't be very happy bedfellows. I think it's almost like the internet is the dream of the oral tradition, really. Like what, <laughs> what better, what better, like, it, yeah, I think I've said this before that the, the internet is like seven league boots for oral tradition. Um, <laughs> it can travel farther and faster than ever before and, and still remain this, this, what it is in essence, it's not perverted by being shared. It's only enhanced, I believe. Yeah. 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 So like I was saying earlier about how, um, kids, you know, can really listen to a story for an hour, even though they've got fractured attention um, from from having a phone. It's like uh, the internet is something we can use so well, and people are using so well, and I see it every day. So I kind of want to, I kind of want to defend it. <laughs> well, me too. It has not done me wrong in my life at all. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been an incredible conversation, and I know that people are going to be just like bursting at the seams with excitement about it. I can just feel that already. We've just touched on so many valuable things and you are just so full of encouragement and positivity that um, you can't help but feel buoyed after after being a part of this. So um, I'm about to have a great day. <laughs> I've begun to already um, and I know it's nighttime there, but I just want to say thank you so much and everybody who is listening check out the links in the show notes to follow Daniel more closely. Um, you can start with the with the podcast, House of Legends, if you like, and, and follow along. You will not be disappointed. You will be thrilled. Thanks very much, Danica. I forgot to mention my Instagram in there. I'm pretty active on Instagram, so that's at House of Legends podcast. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Uh, as I mentioned, the Fair Folk is one of my favorite podcasts. Really, really enjoy it. So I'm really happy to be on here. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Daniel Allison. I always do enjoy talking to him. And I just know that there are people walking around now with an uplifted feeling in their heart and a sense of possibility and of the closeness and the sacredness of your dreams. So thank you for listening. I'd like to thank the musicians who provided music for this episode, particularly Sylvia Woods, whose song Forest March is the opening theme to Fair Folk. If you'd like to catch up with me beyond the podcast, I show up quite regularly on Instagram at danica.voice, and lately I've been offering little pep talks in my stories that I think you might enjoy, a lot of abundance mindset and personal empowerment combined with folklore and paganism and as much inspiration as I can share. You can also find me on Patreon, where I'm reworking the offerings right now and headed towards more live presence. We plan to have meetings monthly soon, and I'll be announcing that shortly. And in the meantime, you can find all of the past offerings to patrons when you sign up, including the Almanac episodes that I was releasing monthly until just recently. I hope that your transition to wintertime is going beautifully, and I'll talk to you very soon.